All right. Pardon me for uh, the commotion. <clears throat> um, it's the allergy season. I'm excited to uh, open the Word of God with you this morning as we uh, continue to worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is a time for us to <clears throat> reach, his, reach for His Word, to open it, and to rally around the truth. It's a truth, it's His truth, and we believe that it has come from His mouth to the, to the writer's pen, uh, first century writers, and he has preserved it down through the centuries that it would wind up in our hands. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and so as a result, um, we can study and uh, we, can, uh, we can be blessed. So let's just do that today. Uh, this is Resurrection Sunday. It's where we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And I want to do that with you by looking at a passage that we just read, in fact, from John chapter 9. So take your Bibles and find your way there to John 9. Uh, as you're turning, I would um, like to ask you to think through some of these questions with me. Who do you look for for guidance? Who do you look for for guidance? Who do you depend on to give you the, the right information, the truth, the peace of mind even, or, or comfort. Or maybe it's, it's not a person, maybe it's an organization, social media, mainstream media. Uh, these are not insignificant questions by any means, even for Christians to ask, or anyone, even of himself, given the times in which we live. I think everyone is asking them. Did you find that to be true? I, I talked to a lot of people, and they're asking these kinds of questions. Who can I trust to give me accurate and helpful information about anything taking place in the world today or even in our country? What's the direction of our country? What will become of us? Will we find ourselves in another war? That's a big one. Is fossil fuel as bad as they say it is? Do we really have less than 12 years before the earth disintegrates from global warming? Was COVID really that bad after all? Why do I need to be vaccinated against a virus that, I've, that, that I have a 98% chance of recovering from? Well, that's a good question. Why are the mRNA drugs passed off as FDA-approved vaccines for COVID when they haven't been? That's an even better question. Why... Have so many thousands of people died from taking them? And at least that many more now disabled because of complications from them. Why would the CDC, together with the WHO, push for more boosters? And speaking of COVID, why haven't we heard much about it anymore? Where did it go? Where have the mask mandates gone? How many genders are there, by the way, since we're asking all these kinds of questions. I lost count. And what are the pronouns that go with each one of them? I, I, am I really racist just because I'm white? In what way is critical race theory a detriment to children brought up on it? What constitutes misinformation? We can go on with questions like these. And they're not a stretch either. Like I say, I hear them asked all the time from people. Maybe you have as well. Maybe you're asking them. These and more like them are really what plague most people today <clears throat> in our country. And depending on what they look to for guidance, some will be more misguided than others, more hurt than others, although all, I believe, are misguided and hurt to a significant degree out there. 
those who are looking to astrology and science and nature before our country entered its tailspin in 2016, they'll find no answers there for sure. As far as the Pope is concerned, well, he supports Fauci, so there's no help there. Psychological and philosophical paradigms, well, they come and go. They're no help. And I think it's a great time to be asking these questions. Okay, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe we do have to entertain them. But do we have to entertain them on this day when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? Well, I would argue that it's actually the best and most appropriate time to be asking such questions. How so? Well, if you indulge me for just a few minutes, I'll answer that question for you after some important background that will better inform my answer. Let me start by saying the concept of a life coach is a relatively recent idea in America. That's right, I said life coach came out a number of it, 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 it came out of a number of different movements and disciplines, adult education, came out of various different aspects of psychology, and something called the potential movement that was prominent back in the 1960s. That taught that, that there was a certain amount of untapped potential in every human being that, when unleashed, can help that person experience an exponential quality of life filled with happiness and creativity and fulfillment. Well, of course it did. It was the 60s. Now, all these movements and disciplines contributed to this idea of life coach that I mentioned just a few moments ago. And I believe it, I believe that it, it actually became a recognized profession by the 80s, according to my research. Believe it or not, this is a recognized profession. It gained popularity through the 1990s and on into the 2000s. There is even an organization now called the International Coaching Foundation. It is the hub for all things coaching. And I'm not talking about sports coaching specifically. What do coaches or life coaches do exactly? Well, they help you cultivate your overall sense of well-being good mental health and quality of life. That's what they do. And they do this by nurturing your physical health, career, finances, relationships with others. They help you work through your problems. They give you the ability to gain a fresh perspective on situations and give you the uh, and, and help you rather to rid yourself of those those negative aspects in your life that prevent you from being successful all that you can be. They help you to get from point A to point B, in other words. A website that promotes life coaches offers this list of things that it does. This is its boast. Better work, life balance, whatever that means, elimination of long-held fears and anxieties, enhance creativity, greater financial security, improve communication skills, more satisfying work life, stronger relationships with friends and family. They do all that. They also meet with you on a regular basis to provide some accountability. Oh, and life coaches, they're not therapists, in case you're wondering. 
No, they're not at all. They cannot prescribe medication. They don't diagnose medical illnesses. In fact, you don't even need a license or be medically trained or even have a college degree to do what they do. I find it interesting and telling of our society, beloved, that it would even have a place for this kind of profession. There was nothing of this sort for the last 2,000 years. You see, for the longest time, cultures placed a premium on things like family, the church, and education. People learned about life and how to deal with it by watching their parents, their church leaders, their teachers, certainly men and women of integrity, military leaders, and even heads of state. As our nation moves fast and furiously away from its Judeo-Christian roots, at least two things have happened in the relatively recent future. Two things. One is the caliber of a leader has dramatically lessened. As the old saying goes, they don't make them like they used to. So there are not many who are actually worthy to imitate. And that's sad. The second thing that's happened, which really contributes to the first, is that there is not much of a desire on the part of young people to imitate these kinds of role models. Our society neither respects parental guidance nor nor appreciates strong male leadership, at least according to public conscience. Kids, they look to rock stars characters in a movie, TV, in their gaming videos, or someone that might just strike their fancy on social media. No wonder we're in such a mess. And once these kids became adults, well, they're absolutely lost. So our society has invented life coaches. Life coaches. And while some of them help you with your general issues, there's actually a growing number of life coaches that specialize in a particular area of life. And they will cater to and encourage the particular bent of their client. There are addiction and sobriety coaches, business, executive, and leadership coaches, career coaches, dating and relationship coaches, diet and fitness coaches, divorce coaches, family life coaches, Coaches for finance, health, and wellness, life skills, spirituality, just to name a few. Now, I was was researching this. The biblical counterpart to this worldly profession of life coach suddenly came to mind. Do you know what it is? It's a shepherd. Shepherd, were you thinking that? As you know, a shepherd is one who tends and rears sheep. But the Bible uses it figuratively for those who give others guidance in life. They're also called pastors and elders. But their guidance goes far beyond what the world's life coaches could ever offer and cover. And it's of a very different nature as well. Shepherds tend to the physical body and to the new nature of a Christian. Pastors care for their members The members in their flock, they nurture each one with God's truth. They protect each one from heresy. They help each one discern God's will 
from the pages of Scripture in order to live wisely, to overcome trials and not to be overcome by them. Overall, they help members run the race of faith well while keeping their eyes on the better country. But to be more precise about biblical shepherds of the faith, we need to point out that they really are under-shepherds of the shepherd who is Jesus Christ. In our celebration of the resurrection this morning, I want to focus our attention on what it means to know Jesus as our good shepherd. So, you're in John chapter 10. We're looking at verses 11 to 18, which we heard read ably this morning. There Jesus says at the very beginning of this short passage, I am the good shepherd. Now the adjective good there translates a Greek word that often refers to a high standard of excellence, of expectation. In this sense, someone who is good is splendidly suited for the task at hand, fitly or appropriately placed. In fact, the same word good occurs in Luke chapter 6, verse 48, where Jesus speaks of that house. You remember that is well built. <clears throat> the word good is, is in that phrase, well. It's well built because it's, its foundation sits on bedrock and therefore it's impervious to floodwaters, unlike the house that rests on sand and washes away in the same flood. That second house was built, but it wasn't built well. Now, it hadn't measured up to the good standards of construction. It wasn't suited for the worst-case scenario. Jesus is the good shepherd in the sense that he is fitly suited for the job of shepherding souls. He is not your average run-of-the-mill shepherd, as we'll see in, a, in just a bit. He is the best there is and that you could ever possibly want. He is the most qualified, the ideal. Now, that's important for us because people's souls are in a desperate need of shepherding. They're lost, wandering about the place. The Old Testament prophet put it this way, All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to his own way. And again, there does seem a way that is right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. The good shepherd shepherds. And his shepherding begins with finding law sheep, these who wander. This is something that the world's coaches cannot do. Yet it is the single most important activity that the good shepherd can do for anyone. Let me say it again. The person best suited to rescue eternally lost souls that wander, then care for them, and then guarantee them hope of eternal joy is Jesus. He is the good shepherd, the shepherd for life. He guides people into all righteousness, shows them how to speak, how to behave, how to think, even how to express correct uh, emotions correctly, and how to love God and neighbor. Essentially, his shepherding is holistic. It's in the area of real living. So we're in chapter 10 this morning, and if you're going to track with Jesus' discussion of himself as the good shepherd, 
you need to know the wider context. Chapter 10 flows from a discussion of chapter 9, where Jesus accuses the spiritual leaders of Israel, who were called shepherds of the people, of being unqualified. Bad shepherds. His words are unmistakable. Self-righteous, blind guides. That's what he calls them. They were selfish, greedy, prideful, hypocritical, judgmental, and unapproachable. They commanded lots of respect and fear, but their shepherding left much to be desired. Sometime, look at Matthew 23, where Jesus levels eight woes against the scribes and Pharisees. These were dangerous men, and the nation was subject to them. Now, in bold contrast to these false shepherds, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd, the only one capable and qualified to shepherd their souls. There are a number of qualities Jesus possesses that set him apart from this bunch of malcontents. But certainly his resurrection is what confirmed and qualified him as the good shepherd. It's the chief one. It's not surprising then that chapter 10 actually weds these two concepts of good shepherd and the resurrection together. So, as you're thinking about this, let me say in addition, in addition to this contrast that Jesus sets up or draws between himself and the religious leaders of his day in order to introduce us to the nature of true shepherding that only he can provide, we cannot help but draw another contrast in our minds. That would be between Jesus and these so-called leaders of our nation to whom we are legally subject. We all know what bad leadership is when we see it, and there's no question that there is no shortage of bad leadership at this time in the history of our nation. We have a, a senile president. We have an inept vice president. We have a greedy administration in the White House that has brought us nothing but high inflation, high gas prices, and lots of needless aggravation. They all are deceitful and have lied to the American people about so many things, even fabricating false narratives with the help of a rogue media to achieve unjust ends. And there are many sheep in the country who blindly follow. Our turbulent and chaotic times are the direct result of their bad leadership. And now you know why the resurrection of Christ is really the best context in which to pose my initial questions. Jesus is not, is not only the true source of life-giving truth, but his resurrection confirms that. So as tragic and as challenging as our times are, the need for people to recognize Jesus as the good shepherd is all the more urgent and necessary. And I would like to satisfy that need this morning with five propositions from our text. Five. Only five. There are, I think, more we can pull from this wonderful text, but our time won't allow. So here's the first. It goes like this. Jesus, as the good shepherd, has authority over life and death. Jesus, the good shepherd, has authority over life and death. This is very different from any shepherd out there, any leader out there. 
At the beginning of time, the Lord called creation into existence by his word. A mere word from the Almighty and mountain ranges formed. Entire oceans swelled and the boundaries um, uh, were, uh, 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 the boundaries of their tides rather were set. Then came all living things, including man and woman. His authoritative word commands life itself. Think about that. His powerful word also commands death as well. He destroyed the population of a sinful world in a universal flood. He drowned the evil Egyptians in the Red Sea. He killed off the generation of Israelites who refused to obey him and go into the land of Canaan. And at a strategic time, he destroyed Israel's enemies all throughout her history. He did this by his word. In Jonah chapter 4, this little, little uh, book of Jonah, in verses 6 and 7, God is shown creating life and then destroying it almost instantly, one after the other, by his word. You remember Jonah is sitting in the hot sun out in the outskirts of Nineveh waiting to see what would happen to the city and we read, the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came and the next day it attacked the plant and it withered. So God grew the plant and God destroyed the plant. As Job once observed, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, as we come to John 10, we find the same theme in verses 17 and 18. Listen to Jesus' bold declaration. I lay my life down. I take it up again. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back. Do you see? He is the Lord. He can create life. He can take life. He can give his life. And he can bring it back again. There's no question that he's claiming authority to orchestrate his own death and resurrection. And he would do just that. Jesus' authority over life and death sets him apart from everyone else, including all leaders and life coaches. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but it bears repeating. No religious leader or founder of any historical movement before Jesus or since has ever made this claim, much less come back from the dead. And Jesus didn't just announce his death and resurrection. He told his followers the exact time he would be taken into custody and the way in which he would be mistreated, the form of his execution that he would suffer and where it would all take place. So what's so significant for us about the fact that Jesus has authority over life and death? His authority makes him the best and most qualified person to shepherd souls. That's what. Now, why is that true exactly? Here's why. What makes Jesus the good shepherd and the most qualified to guide your soul in how to live a truly meaningful life is the authority he has over everyone's greatest comfort, that is eternal life, life to the fullest, and over everyone's greatest th threat, 
to face eternal condemnation. That's death to the fullest. He has authority over both of those. Who else would you want to go to to have shepherd your soul? The one who has authority over these is hands down the one everybody should turn to for matters of life and death and how to have life and avoid death, both in their fullest forms. So, as we see, Jesus is our good shepherd. And as our good shepherd, he has the authority over life and death. Number two, Jesus is our good shepherd, genuinely desires to shepherd your soul. He not only has the authority over life and death, he desires very much to shepherd your soul. To love you. We cannot get away from the thought of corruption when we think of leadership today in any form, political or otherwise. Mostly because there's always money involved in leadership. And whenever there's money involved, there is bound to be corruption. Ultimately, that usually winds up happening. It's sort of a logical conclusion. For the right price, leaders will mislead you and make you think that they're leading you. They will manipulate situations to support their own narrative. Even incarcerate innocent people and release criminals. They fall under God's indictment of Isaiah 2, 23. They declare the wicked innocent for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Even these life coaches today who do not lead for free, by the way, even if they enjoy helping people, there is still a selfish element even in that, if you think about it. I help people because it gives me such a good feeling to see them helped. Or what if helping people became a drudgery? Or someone was really a difficult case? Or someone else who needed help was willing to pay more than, than another person who really needed help? You see what I mean? Money has a way of directing our thoughts and our actions. Jesus died for his enemies. His life for theirs. And you begin to see how stark the difference is, don't you? What we're saying here is, is that Jesus wants to shepherd your soul. And let me prove this to you. If we widen our exegetical lens on this passage, you'll notice that there are four facts about this truth. First, in verses 11 to 15, Jesus contrasts his strong desire to guarantee his sheep deliverance from physical harm with the selfish desire for the self-preservation on the part of the hired hands. Beginning at verse 11, he says he's the good shepherd. Good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Unlike the hired hand in verse 12, who are, who are not shepherds, who, who uh, are not the owner, owners of the sheep. And when they see a wolf coming, they leave the sheep and they flee. And the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters the flock. Verse 13, he flees because he's a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. Now, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know, know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, what makes Jesus the good shepherd for those who follow him is, as I've said, his love for them. 
He loved them by dying for them so they would, so they would live. And I love this illustration that he uses. It communicates so well. You, you don't have to be a sheep herder to understand it. The principle behind it is all too familiar to us. We all know, don't we, that the only one who will take the best care of your property is you. You can't trust anybody else. You can let a friend borrow your car for the day, but he won't treat it with the same care and respect that you do. It's not his car. Uh, the reason for this is because the only, only you have a vested interest in what belongs to you, you see. Even those who, they, who you pay to oversee some part of your property won't be as meticulous as you are, no matter how well you pay them, because they have no vested interest in it. Uh, they'll let certain details slide where you wouldn't. Jesus' illustration of the first century shepherds, the, the hired hand, shows us that they go only so far in their care for the sheep. They might grin and bear the hard work of shearing them and corralling them and, and keeping them all together, but they won't endanger their lives for them. When they see the wolf coming, they flee for their lives and they leave the sheep vulnerable. Not so with the good shepherd. He gladly gives his life for the sheep. He's the one who will leave the 99 in search of the one lost. Do you remember? Jesus laid his life down for the sheep. He rose from the dead and conquered death for the sheep. And he promises them that they would not be subject to rot in the grave, but enjoy life eternal in a resurrected body. Second, there's also the fact from verse 14 that Jesus enjoys an intimate relationship with those that he has saved and will have saved when all is said and done. He says, I know my own and my own know me. And you know that the word know here refers really to a relationship, not some intellectual knowledge. We would rephrase this, he loves them and they love him. Third, there is also the fact from verse 16 that Jesus must bring other sheep not of this fold into the existing fold so that the two folds could be one flock with one shepherd. The phrase must bring, by the way, is in the Greek text. It means simply it was necessary that Jesus bring sheep into his fold. Absolutely necessary. Fourth and finally, Verse 18 makes it very clear that no one could force Jesus to lay his life down for the sheep. No, he did so on his own free will. He wasn't paid or promised some important position by big tech. Paul spells out the order of events in eternity past in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and, and by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. These four facts indicate very clearly Jesus' strong desire to shepherd your soul. He wants to. Number three, Jesus as the good shepherd can guarantee eternal life then to those who turn to him. He can guarantee eternal life to those who turn to him. 
the only shepherd who can do this. The last clause of this sentence, or of the sentence, is best understood as a purpose clause, so we would interpret the clause this way. I'm sorry, this is in verse 17. Get a little ahead of myself here. Verse 17 says, I lay down my life and I take it up again, or take it up again. There is a purpose clause there, and it's, and it's, it's better read, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. And what this means is that Jesus' death was planned and carried out with the resurrection in mind. He died in order to rise. And his resurrection was not an end in itself either. No, he didn't come to earth simply to die and then rise again for some show. He, his death and resurrection were means to some very blessed ends that John talks about in other parts of his gospel. Where what are those blessed ends? Well, one is Jesus' own glorification, where he took his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Another end is to pour out the Holy Spirit on others in conversion, which he did at Pentecost and then from uh, since then. A third end is, as the angel of the Lord told Mary and Joseph, to save his people from their sins. And Jesus rephrased that this way in Matthew 18, 11, The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And in salvation, he raised them up spiritually from death to life and then promised them that their physical bodies will be raised at his return. Putting this all together... Jesus lays down his life so that he could take it up again and thereby promise resurrection and glorification to those for whom he died. John 10 doesn't mention all these ends, but we would be right in thinking of them as a package deal. And a significant part of that package deal is the future resurrection of Jesus' sheep. Paul illustrates this very truth in Romans 8.29, telling us that Jesus was the first fruits of many to follow. He rose, and his followers will follow him in resurrection. Good shepherd. Good shepherd is not only the best there is, the, the most qualified, he's really the most compassionate, really. When you think about this, good is in our verse may also mean merciful and kind. Is this not the nature of a shepherd to be out for the best interest of the sheep? To lead them in a way, going before them, calling them to follow him, never sending them where he himself has not been? Or to do something that he himself has not done? In this way, he's not, <clears throat> he's, has he not become our great sympathizer? Taking on the form of human flesh and being tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, that he might relate to our struggles and show us how to handle them in a godly way. And laying down his life for the sheep, he became their substitute to receive God's judgment meant for them on himself. He paid the penalty for their sin and died specifically for each one so that each one of his sheep would be spared the condemnation that each so justly deserves. And those of us who are of his fold 
and who are the beneficiaries of the saving act will see him someday. Jesus mentions in verse 16 that he does have other sheep that are not of this fold. He says, I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Obviously, the two kinds of sheep in the world, from Jesus' point of view, are Jews and Gentiles. They became, or they came rather to, uh, he came rather to, to first save the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but makes it clear in his high priestly prayer in John 17 that Gentiles would be part of this fold. And he is referring to those in the future who will trust him as their good shepherd. And the text then begs the question of anyone who is exposed to it. Is that you? Are you one of his sheep? Do you know the good shepherd? These questions are all, always relevant. Do you know his voice that rings out from the gospel? The true sheep of Jesus fold know that they were once lost and needed Jesus to find them. And they repented of their sin that drove Jesus to the cross and trusted in his cross work to save them and reserve their place in heaven. We can be sure that this whole wonderful process of redemption will dead end into glory because the good shepherd rose from the grave. Number four, Jesus as the good shepherd pleases the Father. He pleases the Father. There are all kinds of things that can motivate leaders and life coaches. All kinds of things. We've already talked about money and the satisfaction of one's labors. There's also prestige, popularity, power, and over others who depend on you. Even being motivated by genuinely caring for someone and having his best interest in mind is a motivation that is not the ideal. Isn't that interesting? Some, some of you might think that that's a great motivation. And I'm not saying that it's, it's not part of something that can motivate even Christians, genuinely caring for someone and having his best interest in mind. There may very well be life coaches out there who do genuinely care for someone and have his best interest in mind. But that cannot be the ideal. And that's really the most they can do because the moment they stop caring is the moment they stop leading or coaching. You see how that works? They can justify hanging you out to dry, turning around and leaving because you're just too much of a problem case. Jesus' primary motivation to love us was because he loved the Father. And that would never change, ever. Therefore, Jesus' love for us and his shepherding of our souls can never change. This is what makes the Good Shepherd good. He was obedient to the will of the Father. And according to verse 18, Jesus said that he laid down his life uh, <clears throat> only to take it up again in obedience to the command he received from his Father. And he explains that it is for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. What the Father loves about the Son is that which is really most characteristic of love, and that's selflessness. Selflessness. The son was selfless and giving. He taught others that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. 
He modeled that by leaving heaven and taking on human flesh and being obedient to death. God loves the Son because the Son obeyed him and depended on him in his earthly ministry. Jesus' obedience and dependence were demonstrated, beloved, perfectly in the crucifixion and resurrection that God the Father had ordained for him. In fact, Jesus' act of laying down his life and taking it up again was a grand example of submission to the Father that always existed between these two members of the Godhead, always, even in eternity past. The whole death, burial, and resurrection account speaks to Jesus' character, you see, to the kind of person that he is, that he always was and always will be. We might see God directing our attention to the crucifixion and resurrection and saying, this is the kind of person my son is. And this is why I love him so much. He honors me. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John at this point, says, quote, the basis that makes salvation possible is the love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for the Father. Their intimate love for each other is logically prior to the love that God has for those he saves. So the love that God has for the Son and the Son for the Father is the basis of God's saving love. Jesus shows us then what a love relationship with the Father produces in a worshiper. Selflessness, a a consideration for the interests of others more than for oneself. Is this not the kind of shepherd that we want? Shepherding our souls, one who has an intimate relationship with God and who submits to his will. The Father's will was that Jesus fulfill a redemptive process that called for his death and resurrection and ascension and glorification and then the resurrection of others who are of his sheepfold. We come to the last one. Jesus, as the good shepherd, models righteousness to his sheep, models to us. Good, in this sense, means reliable and trustworthy. Jesus contrasts himself with the unreliable spiritual leaders, as you know, of Israel at the end of chapter 9, and also in verses 1 and 8 and 10 of this chapter. Now, we've already seen in what ways he, he's different from them. He's not hypocritical. Rather, he's credible and trustworthy and honest. He's true and genuine. And credibility and integrity and honesty are are not what we would say are characteristic of leaders today in our nation. Yet, ironically enough, those characteristics still, still seem to be what American people look for in leaders, certainly political candidates, and in those in office already. Isn't that ironic? We know this to be true because once... People catch one of them in a lie, then they want nothing to do with him, right? Isn't that how it works? But prove Jesus to be our trustworthy shepherd, possessing integrity and honesty and having no hypocrisy, again, is the resurrection. That confirmed everything he taught and demonstrated and promised in his public ministry. 
Everything that went before that Jesus taught and demonstrated was proven true when he rose from the dead. It sealed his testimony forever. Therefore, Jesus, our good shepherd, is worthy to be imitated. He is our model for godliness. He calls us to pick up our cross and follow him without concern for what might happen to us, assuring us that if we are willing to lose our lives for his sake, we'll surely find them in the end. And this is really what he did. He laid his life down only to take it up again. Who do you look to for guidance, for truth, for peace of mind, for guarantee that there is a wonderful full life to be lived in God's heaven? You won't find anyone or any organization on earth that will stir you, that will steer you in the right direction or can help you with that. In fact, he and they will lead you to destruction. It has to be that way because it is under the control of the evil one. They are under the control of the evil one. All people, all organizations that are not, that are not redeemed. Apostle Paul said in no uncertain terms that those who walk according to the course of this world, they walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He is the one that masquerades as an angel of light, remember? And he sets up his own disciples, counterfeit shepherds, who fool millions. Have you been fooled? Your shepherd, your life coach, your leader should be, must be, and can only be the one who has authority over life and death, genuinely desires to shepherd your soul, guarantee eternal life to you if you turn to him in obedience to God and as a model of righteousness to you. That is Jesus, the good shepherd. Our Father, we are grateful, so very grateful, that you sought us out and bought us, that you know us and established a relationship with us, that through Christ you reconciled us to yourself in a personal way, that we might know you and know the Savior and Lord, that we might live for you and that we might rejoice knowing and anticipate greatly the time when we will see you face to face. We pray that we will we will dwell on those truths as we forge ahead on the narrow way through all that may assail us in this time in our lives and whatever may come until we see you. And Lord, we pray that if it should be that there are those in earshot of this very message who do not know you as the Good Shepherd, that they would reconsider their options they would see the, the dead ends and the folly of following men and organizations and will turn to the only Lord and Savior 
from these dumb idols of theirs and be saved, that they may live for you and that your people will have a great presence in this world, that you would use them to bring about revival for your good, for your, uh, your glory and the good of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.